I'm glad you can join with us on this uh, Easter Sunday, uh, the second Sunday in which we've not been able, or the second Easter that we've not been able to gather together. Um, I can almost say at least my heart's desire will not, it will be the last Easter where we won't be able to meet together as God's people. As we gather around this particular chapter of Scripture today, Luke chapter 24, what I hope to do is to connect some of the dots today, some of the dots that uh, Luke um, uh, has in this chapter for us, to connect some of these dots in such a way that we get a picture of the resurrection and of, of the full picture of the resurrection and why these things are all connected together. If you've been following with us through this passion season, you will have uh, been following along with us uh, within time frames. For instance, we have been focusing through our uh, weekly or daily readings, we have been focusing on the last 24 hours of Jesus Christ and just working through events that are according to that timetable of 24 hours. If you were able to join with us on our Good Friday service just a couple days ago, we spent time in the last three hours of Jesus's life, uh, looking at three mysteries that were a part of um, his dying hours, so to speak, between 12 and 3 o'clock. Well, today what I want to do is continue in that theme and look at the first day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is how Luke portrays it for us. He gives us three incidents in, 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 on that first day that demonstrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing about Luke as he does that is he ties each of those incidents back to the Old Testament scriptures and the necessity of Jesus dying. That's one of the reasons we read some of the passages from Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. It's because the death of Jesus and the necessity of Jesus is behind the necessity of his resurrection as well. And so as we go through this text today, we are going to go through it by looking at three different time frames of the same day, the first resurrection day. In fact, the first Lord's Day, the first day of the new age. We're going to look at an event that took place early in the morning. We're going to take a, a look at an event that took place early in the afternoon. And then we're going to take a look at an event that took place later in the evening that day. And so we dive into simply the first event that Luke describes of this first resurrection day. And it's the morning, early morning, and it's at the garden tomb. It must have been a strange day when uh, these um, uh, ladies woke up. Maybe they never even went to sleep from the night before. Their emotions were probably still raw from the events of Good Friday and what they had witnessed. And then as they rested by law on the, on the Saturday and just worked through what they had seen and what they had felt and how quickly the circumstances of Jesus' life and their relationship had changed, that they might have been in the temple with him on the Thursday and uh, just before he left to go to the Passover with his disciples. And then all of a sudden, the news of Jesus' arrest and this quick sham trial, this quick conviction, this sentencing, and then before anyone could wrap their heads around it, he was being taken out to the Calvary Hill, and he was crucified, and he was buried. All of that within about 15 hours. And what an incredible turn of events for these ladies who had followed Jesus throughout his ministry. And so early... On Sunday morning, a small group of these women make their way back to the tomb. The tomb that had been given for this purpose by Joseph of Arimathea to finish dealing with the body of Jesus at death. 
And certainly it wasn't an act of faith, was it? As these women made their way to the tomb, because why were they going to the tomb? They had spices that they had prepared, and those spices were spices on which they were going to, uh, or which they were going to put on the body of Jesus to anoint him for death. But when they had dry, arrived at the tomb, we just read how their world was turned upside down. Everything was discombobulated. And the word that is given that Luke used to describe them is simply they were perplexed. They were in a state of confusion. They weren't able to make sense of what they had found. And by the way, it seems kind of odd that here we're trying to prove the resurrection and trying to make a case for the resurrection. And the very first story we make is about women who are doubting the resurrection are confused by the fact that there was an empty tomb. When they get there, what did they find? They found that the stone was rolled away. And when they get there, what didn't they find? Well, they stuck their heads inside the tomb and there was no body. And then Luke describes what they did see. And it frightened them. Because two men appeared to them in dazzling apparel. These were angels and we might guess at a number of things that caused their fright. But I suspect seeing these two angels in this dazzling apparel was enough to do that. And then next Luke tells us what they heard from the mouths of these angels as they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. There is the first declaration of the risen Christ. It comes from the mouth of angels to two or to a group of doubting women. And then notice what the angels say to these women. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered up into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And then notice verse 8 of chapter 24. It tells us what they remembered. They remembered his words. To this point, the women at the tomb had been unable to connect the dots. They had seen an empty tomb, and their first response had been perplexity. But it was not until they were told by the angels about Jesus' words, and that upon hearing about those words that, that they believed. But not even the eleven and the others with them, as the women would recount to them what they had seen and heard, their words seemed to them like nonsense. Their, their words about a risen Lord seemed like nonsense to even the eleven. And I thought, well, how many people are like that today? They might be aware of an empty tomb. They might be aware of what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ, but it means nothing to them. You see, an empty tomb is not in itself faith-producing. For some, word of a resurrection from the dead is nonsense. For others, there is no meaning attached to an empty tomb. Either they don't know the dots that need to be connected, that is, they have never heard of the necessity of the sufferings of Christ and the death of Christ, or having heard of those things, they have forgotten all about the words that speak about the necessity of Jesus' suffering and death. Or like these ladies, 
They have not connected the dots between the words of Jesus and the words of Scripture which tell us of the necessity of his suffering and death being connected with belief in his resurrection. See, as we work this through, we understand that words matter. And some words matter more than other words. And the most important words are the words of God. Those are the words that matter most in all of life and in every area of life. We need the words of God in order to make sense of the world in which we live, in order to make sense of the events in which transpire in the world, in order to interpret the comings and goings of this world. Notice again, or remember, recall what the angels said to them. Remember how he told you. The words of God and the words of Christ are critical for making sense of life. And then it's almost like a, a light went on in the ladies' heads and they remembered his words. These foundational words of God, foundational to making sense of an empty tomb, foundational to making sense of God. Oh, how it matters, loved ones, that we know the word of God. Oh, how it matters that we remember the word of God. Oh, how it matters that we trust the word of God. Oh, how it matters that we take the word of God and lay it over the world in which we live and make sense of this world. Because it's only the word of God that makes sense of life, all of life, that explains our life, that interprets our life. The word of God is absolutely unique. It's described as a pure word, as a living word, as a powerful word. God speaks and this world came into existence. Why does the word of God matter? Well, because God is real. And because God is real, that changes everything. His word changes everything. He controls all things. He knows the beginning from the end. He will never utter a word that will be meaningless. He will never utter a word that will not come true. He will never utter a word that is nonsense. And so the angels say to these women at the tomb, remember how he told you he must first suffer and die, and then be raised. You see, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is an affirmation of the necessity of the sufferings and death of Jesus. And what they are an affirmation of is the, an affirmation that God has accepted the pure and perfect sacrifice of God on our behalf. And the fact that we know that God accepted the sacrifice of Christ, his sufferings and his death, was then that God raised him from the dead. And so here we have this first scene that Luke paints for us. This first scene that he recalls to us. This first resurrection day morning where he has the angel's declaration to these women who came to the tomb doubting. This divine word, he is not here, he is risen. And then we go to the next scenario that Luke has recorded for us as he talked to people and accumulated or compiled this, this day event. The second, now we move into the afternoon. And it begins there in verse 13 of chapter 4. 
where in verse 13 it says, that very day, that same day that the women had gone to the tomb, that very day, two of them, two of the people who had been with the 11, been with the, the, the ladies, been with the others, probably through the, 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 the Saturday or the Sabbath as they waited and as they prayed and they wondered together. Two of these people, two ordinary people are making their way from Jerusalem back to a little town of Emmaus. We know the name of one of them, Cleopas. The other one, some presume, could have been his wife or another disciple. But doesn't it seem anticlimactic again? That here is Luke, and he's putting forward to us a case that Jesus is raised from the dead. And first he describes the case of women going to the tomb, not thinking that Jesus would be raised from the dead. And now he describes two unknown men or individuals walking back from Jerusalem, a little bit dejected and wondering what this was all about. These two had been with the eleven and the others, as I said, at least earlier that day, and if not, over the Sabbath. Some suspect that they were, had all returned back to the upper room in which they had celebrated that last Passover in which Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. These two individuals had heard the testimony of the women as they came back from the grave and as they told them about the angels and what the angels had said. We also know that they heard about the testimony of, of, of other disciples who had, who had also witnessed the empty tomb. And yet here they were hours later, walking back from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It says it was about seven miles. That's about 11 kilometers. That's about the distance from the, the church building here at uh, Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church to Sirius Coffee down the road. It's about an 11-kilometer walk, two to three hours at the most. And as they were making their way from, from, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, or as I want to put it, from Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church down to Sirius Coffee, they're having a discussion amongst themselves. They're talking about the events of the morning. Sometimes they're discussing. Sometimes they're arguing together. We, we realize and we know that they were disappointed because they thought that this Jesus would be the one that would save them. They were confused. They, they couldn't make sense of it all. They didn't understand what the ladies had said and what the disciples who had witnessed the, uh, the empty tomb had said. They, they were confused about these things. And somewhere along the way on this walk back, and I'd like to say it's right around the beach club, if you know the Parksville area, that Jesus walks up from the beach and, and, and sees them walking down the old island highway, and he sees them arguing and talking with one another, and he kind of walks up to them, and he says to them, what is this conversation that you're having with each other as you walk? And notice at this point that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. As I suspect, they were a group of followers of Jesus who would have recognized him in any other given circumstance. But notice their response to Jesus. It's, it's fascinating how Luke describes not only events, but emotions behind events. And it, the first thing it, it, Luke records, he says, they were sad. See, I don't think they were sad at this point about the events of the day. We've already said they were confused about the events of the day so far. It seems like they were saddened by the ignorance of this stranger. 
How is it possible that he didn't know about the events of the last two or three days? How could he be so oblivious to the things that had been going on around them? As I thought that through, I thought, well, sometimes are we not shocked by the seeming ignorance of others? Because we think that things that are so important to us, things that matter so much to us, things that are near and dear to our hearts should also be near and dear to their hearts, that they should be important to them as well. We think about the things that impact our world, and we think those are the only things that matter, and that everybody should know about those kinds of things. But that's not the case, is it? And Cleopas gives the answer. And the answer is, are you the only one who is out of the loop? And I think to myself, if only they knew who it was that had asked them that question. But then there's this beautiful exposition of the gospel. It's the gospel according to Cleopas. The trouble is he didn't really believe it, but in verses 19 to 21, we have him describing the gospel. He knew things in his head that had not made their way down to his heart. He spoke about the ministry of this one who was a prophet, mighty in word and in deed. And in fact, that's what Jesus was. He knew of the sham trial and of the crucifixion and of the death of Jesus, which is critical to our understanding of Christians as a faith. We believe that Jesus was the prophet of God and that he had to suffer and die. He spoke about how, how Jesus was to be the hope of them, the redeemer for them. And we believe that Jesus is our hope and our redeemer. He knew about the empty grave. He, he knew it. He had heard the testimony of the women. He had heard the testimony of some of the apostles. And even knowing all of this, he still had doubts. He was not convinced. He had the facts about the resurrection. He had the facts about Jesus. But he had no experience with the living Christ. This was what they so longed for. This is what they so needed as they made their way from Jerusalem back to Emmaus. Christ was near them. Christ was right beside them. And yet they didn't recognize him. You see, the fascinating thing in so many places in the scripture is we have what some people call reader's edge. We know who this familiar stranger is. We know who it is that has joined them in their walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And it's almost like we want to jump into the story and shake them and say, open your eyes, he's right beside you. I wonder sometimes, though, again, if this is not the case with us. And, and it could be even those of us who have a relationship with Christ and we hit circumstances or situations in our world where we are so deep in sorrow. Our struggle or our disappointment is, is so heavy and, and so consuming and we're so discouraged and we're so much in the dark that even though Christ is with us, we don't recognize him. And Luke talks about this kind of thing in another place. And 
We might even say sometimes we think with our family members, they know everything about Christ. We've talked to them. We've had the conversations, and yet they will not embrace him. Or we've talked with our neighbors or friends at school, and, and they still no, will not embrace him. And Luke talks about this in the next book that he wrote in the book of Acts where he talks about a man named Paul who came to a place where people just often gathered. We might call it McDonald's or A&W now, but they often gathered and just talked about various philosophies and various events and things that went on in the world. And, and, and here Paul walks to this group of uh, individuals who are having one of these discussions and he pointed out that they had an idol to an unknown God. They just wanted to cover all of those bases. And, and Paul says, well, let me tell you about this God that you have called an unknown God. And he describes a, a lot of things about his, this God. And, and, and he tells them how this God is independent of them, but in fact how they are dependent on him. How God made them and how God created them from one man, Adam, and how God has determined the exact places and the times that they should live in order, and this is what the scripture says, in order that they should seek him and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from one of us, each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even have some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring. This is the response of Paul to these individuals, and it helps me as I think about people who are looking for Jesus, and he's right there. Notice what Paul says, he is not actually far from each one of us, and he's not. And you say, well, how close is he? Well, Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. He is so close to us that without him we would die. It's not that we have to go far to find him. It's not that we have to go deep to find him. It's not that we have to go university to find him. We simply have to recognize his presence all around us, guiding us, directing us, making himself known to us. And you might say, well, I can't see him. Well, Paul says we are his offspring. You say, what do you mean? Well, we are made in his likeness and image. We bear the image of God. If you're with somebody today, sitting watching this, that person bears the image of God. Is proof, is, is realization that God exists. You see, God is not distant from any of us. He is very, very close to you. He wants to be found by you. And so Jesus is walking with this, these two disciples, and they don't even recognize him. And so now notice how Jesus engages in the conversation in verse 26. And he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets say. Again, this is the second time now in this day that Luke has recorded to us, this second time on the resurrection day, a day when these individuals should be convinced of his resurrection, that the understanding of the resurrection of Jesus is tied to his sufferings and his death. Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. 
and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. That's again why we read part of Isaiah 53 today. In the first instance with the women, it's the angels who declare that Christ is risen and say it was necessary that Christ die. Now we have the exposition of Scripture as Jesus takes these two individuals through this amazing tour of the Old Testament of the passages that spoke directly to the necessity of his suffering and his death. This should start to make us think. Resurrection Sunday is a wonderful thing. But we can't disconnect it from Good Friday and the sufferings and death of Jesus. And you need to ask yourself, and we need to ask ourselves even together, why was it necessary that Christ suffer and die? And how does that necessity prove or validate the resurrection? And as you're thinking about that, recall again Jesus' prayer in the garden. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There is a necessity in Jesus drinking the cup of the Father's wrath. And again, we might say to ourselves, well, what sense does that make of life or of this world or of your life? Where does meaning in life come from? You see, I am growing in my conviction that I'm, and I'm embracing with all of my heart and mind that those answers again come from embracing the reality that God is real and that changes everything. And that a knowledge of God and the scriptures enable us to make sense of the world in which we live in. That knowledge of God of the scriptures puts my life and my feelings and my longings into a picture that I can understand. And that knowledge of God in the scriptures best frames the gospel, illustrating its beauty and its power. That only knowledge of God can bring rest to a restless heart. That only knowledge of God can convince me that I will never be at home here on earth, that I will only find my home in heaven with him. That only a knowledge of God makes sense of my desire to hide from him when I sin and, and make sense of the shame and the guilt that I feel. And I think to myself, and I ask you the question, have you ever experienced a burning in your heart when you've heard the word of God or somebody has mentioned a verse from Scripture and it all of a sudden connects with the deepest longing, the innermost feeling that you have, and explains a need that you thought nobody else was aware of. And after Jesus left them, we find that they acknowledged together, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened the scriptures? I hope you see that now here is the second reference also to the word the word of God, the words of Jesus. The first reminder was the angels to the women, remember what he spoke to you. Now here, Jesus opens the scriptures up to them, beginning with, with Moses and, and then the prophets. We have to be people of the word. And as I was thinking about it, what is a hindrance to these two individuals 
to accepting the resurrection. There's two things. First was ignorance. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. They only wanted the good parts of the scripture. They only wanted the, the warm and fuzzy and happy parts of the scripture. And second was unbelief. Slow of heart to believe. You see, in this instance, they were slow of heart to believe in the necessity of Jesus' sufferings. And so, through ignorance and unbelief, they could not see Jesus. And so the living word, the word made flesh, opens up to them the written word. Oh, how we need to be people that turn to the word of God to make sense of our lives and what we face. And not just the parts that we like, but all of it. Because all of it has been given to help us make sense of our lives and the world in which we live in. And you notice here it says, we see that as they hear the word, and then as Jesus takes the bread, and it's interesting to me why, why it's in the breaking of the bread, and they will acknowledge that later, that, that when he broke the bread and blessed it, then we saw him. And I've been wondering a little bit about it. What, what was it in the breaking of the bread when, when he took bread at the meal in their house and he broke it and he blessed it and he gave it to them, all of a sudden their eyes were open. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly. It just tells us that's event. I like to think that all of a sudden as Jesus broke the bread and gave it to them, they saw the nail-pierced hands. And all of a sudden their eyes were open. And they knew that that was Jesus. When he gave them the bread and said, this is my body broken for you, they knew it was Jesus. And so the women had been told, he is not here, but he is risen. These two, as they sat in their home for a meal in the evening, had their eyes open and they recognized him. He was alive. And then he vanished from their sight. They had gained clarity through hearing the word of God. They had recalled to one another the way that the word of God had uniquely inflamed their hearts. Loved ones, this is why we sing and pray and preach the word of God. Human words will do nothing for us. Divine words will transform us. And then we come to the final event of this first resurrection day that Luke records for us. It's evening in the upper room. You notice in verse 33, it says that that same hour they rose and they returned to Jerusalem. And what did they find when they returned to Jerusalem? They found the 11 and those who were gathered with them together. But before they could even say what they had heard and what they had saw, there was this sort of electricity in the room, this excitement in the room. And they heard the apostolic witness to the resurrection as they, they said, and some of us have seen him. The Lord has risen indeed and he appeared to Simon. And then they told them, about what had happened to them on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
You have to forgive me just for a moment as I take a few moments. I was struck by the phrase, they found them gathered together. It really carries a certain weight today, doesn't it? As I thought about that phrase, I thought, who knew that as a people of God, we would be forbidden to gather together? And who knew that the anticipation that we felt of being able to finally meet together on this resurrection day would be dashed in less than 24 hours of opening up our church? And we need to think these things through. You don't really appreciate something until it's taken away from you. And I thought, have we taken for granted the freedoms that we had to meet together as a people of God. I hope that all of us are beginning to appreciate with increasing intensity the importance of gathering together physically, meeting together, encouraging one another, sharing stories, telling each other what God has done for us, what we have seen, what we have heard, Stirring up one another to love and good deeds. I don't know how long this will go on, but I do know that we have to become more creative in finding ways to meet together. Maybe we become too reliant on this building that we have of gathering us together with hundreds of people, and we need to determine in our hearts to look for ways to gather in smaller groups like on this first Resurrection Sunday. Eleven, a few of the others, and these two disciples. What I do know is we need each other physically and personally. Notice the encouragement that they found together. Notice how these two disciples couldn't bear to be by themselves when they heard the news about Jesus, they had to go and find others. As I read those words, I thought, never again will I take for granted the phrase gathered together. We need Christ's people. But notice again this final confirmation that Christ is alive. It says, as they were talking and as they were sharing these things, all of a sudden, the risen Lord appeared with them. And they didn't know what to think. Clearly, they were unsure of who or what it was they were seeing. And then notice again the mild rebuke. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? This is, as I go back on this text, I think we have to be a little more gentle with people who don't immediately embrace the truth of the resurrection. Here are these ladies. They come to a tomb with spices fully prepared to anoint a dead body. Here we have two disciples walking on a road back home, dejected and arguing, having heard about an empty tomb and having others witness to the empty tomb, and yet they still didn't believe. And now we have all these men and women of God gathered in a room, and Jesus appears to them, and they still doubt the resurrection. But Jesus says to them, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have 
flesh and bones as you and I have. And then he asks for food. I, I just, I chuckled to my, why ask for food? I think in part, there's nothing more human than sharing a meal together, is there? There's nothing more human than the need to ingest food. And so he took and he ate. I just thought again about the anticipation of a resurrection body. We will be recognizable. It will be a body with flesh and bones. And it will be a body which at least can enjoy broiled fish. <laughs> I don't know if that's what I'm looking for terribly, but I am looking forward to eating forever and ever. That came out the wrong way. But then the unmistakable theme, I think, that God wants us together. And this is the third time that Luke does this. We're taken back once again to the scriptures, to things written about Christ in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, and how these things must be fulfilled. And it says, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again. We have the declaration to that fact of the angels, we have the exposition of the scriptures throughout the Old Testament of Jesus to the two on the road. And now we have the understanding that Jesus gives to the 11 of those words. The word is declared, the word is explained, and the word is understood. You see, why does all this make sense? Why is all this necessary then? And here we end. It says, Jesus opened his minds and said to them, Thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be offered to all. You see, that's the connection between the death and the resurrection of Christ. That the death of Jesus was purposeful. It was a sacrificial death as we've looked at. It was a necessary death as we come to understand in scriptures. He died for our sins in our place. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the one who bore our penalty that took our curse upon himself. And the proof that that was accepted by God was that God raised him from the dead. Therefore, we can have forgiveness of sins through repentance. That is the glory of Resurrection Sunday. That because God raised Jesus from the dead, accepting his sacrifice for our sins offered up through his sufferings, we can come to him in repentance and find forgiveness of sins. That's all we have to do. The work of salvation was finished on the cross. The benefit of salvation now is a free gift of God to all who will repent. Oh, glorious resurrection day. Oh, may God lead many of us who have never repented to repent today and find the forgiveness of sins through the risen Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and it is with great joy in our hearts that Jesus is raised from the dead. And it's not just the fact that he was raised from any old kind of dead, but that he was raised from a purposeful death. And that in raising Christ from that purposeful death, you are declaring to all that you have accepted his full and complete and perfect sacrifice 
for the sins of all who would put their trust in him. Oh, glorious resurrection day. Father, might many come to Christ today through repentance and find forgiveness of their sins as they understand Scripture in a fresh way today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.